The following presentation is from Mountain Park Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Mountain Park, along with additional audio and video teachings, visit mountainpark.org. We launched by looking at the story last week of Levi, whose name was changed later on to Matthew, who was one of the 12. He was one of the 12 disciples. And the concept that we're going after here this whole year is, what would it be like to be one of the 12? To, to put on their sandals and imagine encountering Jesus, not just talking about or theologizing about the concept of a, of a Messiah 2,000 years ago, but talking about a relationship with a person named Jesus. What does that look like? And uh, that's what we're going after this year. Today, we're looking at what those disciples had access to. Uh, we're st- uh, stepping into their sandals, imagining from their perspective, what, w- what did they have access to? What, was, what were their expectations with regard to uh, Messiah? What was going on in the world around them that would have shaped their response to Jesus coming up to them and saying, follow me? We're going to kind of enter into their world, and then as a result, talk about what's going on in our lives that shape our response to God. See, what we have access to, it shapes the condition of our heart in the same way that what the disciples had access to shaped the condition of their heart. And so it's the condition of our heart that determines how we respond when Jesus says, follow me. As I said last week, this first section is called decision. And so uh, it's, I don't think it's just a one-time decision. It's a daily decision. Will we follow Jesus again today? And so it's not a salvation issue. It is a relationship issue. Will we continue to do this? So as we talk about that, the condition of our heart determines how we respond to that invitation from Jesus. Follow me. That's what we're taking a look at today. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your story. I thank you that we get to talk about it freely here. And uh, God, I pray that uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that there would be, uh, that hearts would be stirred as we talk about the condition of the heart, that it would be your voice that speaks, that challenges, that touches, uh, and God, that I would get out of the way. Come, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, the disciples... They had access to the, the Hebrew scriptures, or what we refer to as the Old Testament, or the First Testament. It's the first two-thirds of our Christian Bible. They had access to that, and uh, they, they also were very familiar with it. And they knew that there was the, the promise of a coming king, a king of all kings, a messiah. In fact, they, uh, they understood uh, uh, way back in Genesis chapter 3, they saw that, that one day an offspring of Eve, Adam and Eve, one day an offspring of Eve would crush Satan under his feet. And then we read from Isaiah 53, uh, if you do the read for next week's uh, part that's on your sheet, last week I invited you to read Isaiah 53, which is this incredible chapter written centuries before there was ever a crucifixion that uh, there were these grotesque uh, and amazing details about Christ's death on the cross. This is referred to as the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. They were aware that there would be uh, that there would be uh, some kind of Messiah 
throughout the Old Testament story. But then the Old Testament ends with the last book, which is, the, which is written by the Italian prophet, Malachi. And, and so the Old Testament story ends there, and we have 400 years between the end of the Old Testament story and the story that we find the disciples in. And that 400 years carried with it a tremendous uh, history, tremendous amount of things that shaped the hearts of those disciples of the Jewish people at that time. See, at the end of the Old Testament story, the, the Jews are under the authority of the Persians at that time. The Persians took over the Babylonians, and so at that point, at the end of our Old Testament story, the Persians are in control. The Jews are not in control of their land. It's the promised land, Jerusalem. They get to live there now, but as a result of the exile and all that stuff, they don't have the the power in that area. But they do have a consistent lineage in the priesthood that goes all the way back to Aaron, All the way back to the time of Moses, the beginning of the Old Testament uh, uh, story, the lineage for the high priest uh, was through the line of Aaron. And so the high priest was still part of that line, even through all the turmoil in our Old Testament story. And the Jewish people are unified. They are together as a group. But that's very different than what we find at the beginning of our New Testament. Over those 400 years, the power is still not in the hands of the Jews. It's now a transition to the Romans. It went through a few different leaders, but now in our New Testament story, the Romans are in charge. There's been significant change, however, in the lineage of the priesthood. About halfway in between that time, around 200 B.C., the king who was in charge of the area was the most brutally violent and vicious king that the Jews had ever experienced And they experienced quite a bit in the Old Testament journey. This was a guy who his nickname was the Madman. And one of the first things he did when he uh, took over Jerusalem is he went into, in 200 BC, he went into the Holy of Holies. Now the temple had one central place where only the high priest could go. And it it was the sacred of sacred places. The Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go there once a year. And this madman king barges into the temple and storms into the Holy of Holies. This is a complete, complete no-no. And he tears apart, rips apart these ancient scrolls that are part of the Jewish faith. Just terrific things that he does. And he even burns on the altar a pig. Now for Jews... You've got to understand just how unclean a pig is. I mean, they don't sell bacon at at Einstein Bagels as far as I know. This is an unclean animal. And this guy takes the juices from this burned pig and splashes it around the Holy of Holies in the temple. Unbelievable. I mean, this is is hard for us to fathom how, how terrible this would have been. I mean, there are some things in life that you just don't do. I've learned as a man, I'm never to talk about PMS. I'm never, ever, I mean, doesn't matter what the circumstances are, I'm never to blame anything on it, I'm never to talk about it, I'm never to fully understand it, I'm never to go anywhere near it. Even right now, talking about it here publicly with you, it's very uncomfortable. And I just, I just understand, you're just not supposed to go there. So I should stop right now. There are certain things in life you're just not supposed to do. And this was uh, uh, my little example times a million as far as the Jewish people. You do not do what this madman 
did. And as a result, uh, he also uh, annihilated the lineage from Aaron as the, as the priesthood in the, in the temple. This thing that had been going on for centuries, this madman comes in and kills the priests and turns the priesthood into a political power issue given to the highest bidder, and it's a money, a power issue. The whole thing changes in 200 B.C., the line of the priesthood. That shapes what's happening in our New Testament story. It's, it's a different story. And also, the, among those 400 years, there's a change in terms of the, in terms of the unification of the Jewish people. They are no longer unified as they were at the end of our Old Testament story. There are three groups of power among the Jewish people. One group was heavily influenced by the Greeks. The Greeks uh, brought in and, have, uh, and had a great influence in the area. And this one group uh, connected with that, and they're very rational, no longer believed in the supernatural, did not believe in the resurrection of any human beings, did not believe that any Messiah would be resurrected. Wanted to have everything in their faith be explainable and they wanted to reduce some of the laws and the expectations from the, uh, from the Old Testament stories. And uh, they were considered the liberals. And, uh, and uh, they, wanted to, um, they wanted to kind of reduce this whole thing down. And as a result, they were sad, you see. Uh, they were the Sadducees. Uh, we get that from the song. And uh, so that's one group that was happening in there. Another group was in strict contrast with that. They wanted to follow strictly the letter of the law. In fact, they started to create a whole bunch of other laws piling on to the laws from the Old Testament. And the more laws that they had and followed, uh, the, the more power they would get as a group, and the more uh, power they would get, the more legalistic they would get about their laws. And the whole thing just kind of spun and spun and spun. And... Uh, and uh, they were just not fair, you see? And so they were the Pharisees. And uh, you knew I was going there. But uh, these people, they were, they were uh, 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 adhering to the letter of the law and violating the spirit of the law that was laid down throughout uh, the Old Testament story. And then there's a third group that was a much smaller group, had much less influence, and they are known as the Essenes. They were kind of like monks, and they kind of separated from the whole mess and went off to live in the mountains. The Essenes are most known uh, for a discovery that was made last century of these scrolls that they had hidden in caves above the Dead Sea. These were discovered last century and are referred to as the Dead Sea Scrolls. They are the, the most prolific collection of scriptures that we have, and they were saved because of the Essenes. Uh, so we, here we have three major different Jewish groups, and um, all of, these, all of these things that were happening spiritually and politically and among the Jewish people, these were things that the disciples had access to, and they dramatically shaped the condition of their hearts so that when Jesus approached them and, and claimed that he was the Messiah and invited uh, them to follow him, all of this stuff shaped the condition of their hearts. Okay, enough information. Now, what do we have access to in our stories, in our journeys, that shape the condition of our hearts? 
Family of origin is a huge one. I mean, did you grow up with the opportunity to have the stories from Scripture embedded into your heart, into your bloodstream, so that as an adult you go, that sounds familiar, I've heard that somewhere. Or is this whole journey just totally new and fresh for you? It's it's a huge impact on the condition of your heart as you interact with these stories. Or when you were growing up, did you have any adult model, parent or a family relative or whatever, any adult model who, who modeled for you a vibrant, real relationship with Jesus Christ? Was that a part of your journey at all? Were you encouraged towards spiritual things because that was a good thing? Or were you discouraged towards spiritual things because that, that was narrow-minded thinking? And as we all get older, we are influenced by other followers of Christ that we interact with. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a bad thing. Nationally, there are some kind of standard reputations that Christians have had, the Christians have across the country. There's a group called the Barna Group, and they do these significant studies across the, across the country. Um, the uh, 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 CEO of that organization wrote a book called Unchristian a few years back and kind of summarized how persons outside of the faith see many Christians. And the whole thing could be summarized into the big three. There are three major uh, things that non-Christians often negatively view coming from the Christian community. In other words, for those who are not believers, those who have not yet had a real encounter with Jesus, where Jesus says, follow me, they have thoughts and impressions about Christianity long before they ever actually encounter Jesus. And the big three that, are, uh, that come forth out of this book on Christian are that Christians are um, hypocritical, judgmental, and anti-homosexual. Christians are hypocritical. That Christians say one thing in certain contexts and do other things. And even more profound than that, that Christians uh, very rarely seem to have a different lifestyle than others in the community, uh, on the street, on the block. Christians are perceived by many outside of the faith as being uh, uh, judgmental. First one is hypocritical, second one is judgmental. That uh, for many, Christians are viewed as as, uh, doing a lot more finger pointing than lending a hand in terms of uh, community, in terms of loving others. And then the third big one is anti-homosexual. That the concept of love the sinner, hate the sin, does not communicate well. That the reality of of how that comes across is that many persons outside of the faith uh, uh, equate tragically the concept love Jesus with hate gays. And so there are many things in our culture, in the world that we live in, that we have access to that shape our experience before we even encounter Jesus. They shape the condition of our heart. So as we uh, look at this uh, concept of of the decision and how we're going to respond to Jesus on a regular basis, what is the condition of your heart? Jesus addresses this uh, very clearly with a teaching referred to as the parable of the sower. I want to take a look at that with you. It's found in the book of Mark 
chapter 4. Last week we were in the book of Mark. It's the second book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark. Last week we were in chapter 3, and uh, so we're just uh, going on to the next chapter, uh, Mark chapter 4 here today. Mark chapter 4. Jesus tells a parable about a farmer who scatters seed on a number of different types of soil. A farmer who scatters seed on the, the path, on the rocks, on the thorns, and on a good soil, on fertile soil. And then Jesus says in chapter 4, verse 9, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve, which is interesting, I just noticed this this week, that the twelve is capitalized. I never noticed that before in the NIV, uh, that we were talking about being one of the twelve and what that might look like and what that means. And so I, I never noticed that this group uh, was capitalized here in this, uh, in this uh, translation. The twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. In other words, one of them, it was probably Peter. He's the one who seems to speak up the most. One of them said, Jesus, love your teaching. Love it. It's going great. I'm, I feel it. I'm tracking with you. Get it. Totally get it. But I was wondering um, uh, if you could explain that. Uh, I don't think Bartholomew quite got it. And if you could kind of go through that again for his sake, that would be, that would be fabulous. And so uh, uh, Jesus does a unique and wonderful thing here. He doesn't do this very much in, in his stories. He explains his parable. And maybe there's a reason for that. This is kind of early on in his teaching. Maybe this is some foundational stuff in terms of how we receive what Jesus has to say. But he walks this out and he clarifies what he means by this. Jump down to verse 14. Jesus says, The farmer sows the word. And I've always understood this parable to mean that, uh, that the seed it, uh, represents the different teachings, the different truths of God, that some get scattered here and there, and we, some grow up in us and some uh, don't grow up in us. But since this is a year about Jesus, it just, it just hit me that, that uh, Jesus is referred to as the Word. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the word. Maybe this is not just how we respond to his teachings, perhaps from a distance, but maybe this is also about how we respond to Jesus himself. That the condition of our heart, the condition of our soil, has to do with how we respond to Jesus himself when Jesus gives the invitation, come follow me. I know a number of you are familiar with this parable. It's a, it's a great parable, and sometimes our familiarity kind of shuts us down a little bit. And I just want to encourage you and challenge you not to assume, if you're familiar with the parable, not to assume that you are the fourth and good one before we even launch into this. Just be careful with this. Um, uh, my guess is that uh, most of you here in the room drive, and uh, my guess is that most of you would uh, see yourself as a pretty good driver. So I, I would ask for your honesty. Raise your hand if you would consider yourself an above-average driver. Raise your hand if you would consider yourself an above-average driver. Okay, look at that. About 75% about of you. This is amazing. This is amazing that this church just happens to gather some of the best drivers in the area. I think it's so it's remarkable statistically that you all would just happen to want to combine to gather here in this place. 
Sometimes we have a tendency to see ourselves. Do you understand that what average means? That, that, that sometimes we have a tendency to see ourselves as a little bit better than what we are. In other areas, sometimes we see ourselves maybe as less, but other times we see ourselves as a little bit better. So I just encourage and caution you as we look into these four different types of, sea, of soil, not to assume that the first three are not you. Okay, first soil that Jesus talks about. He begins in the next verse, verse 15. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. The, the path is a place that is, that is hard, packed down. It has been beaten on step after step, year after year. And it, and it is probably the place where the disciples are going to connect most with. They had access to 400 years of pain and suffering and discouragement. They probably were packed paths when, when Jesus approached them. At that point, discouraged and hard hearts. How many times do we hear something that is truth? We know perhaps in, uh, at some part of our brain or later on in our life, we know that was true, but we don't let it penetrate us. It can't penetrate a hard heart at times. It's one of the, the frustrating things about doing ministry in the modern Western culture is that very few in this community are blown away by the story of Jesus because we have access to so many things uh, uh, that perhaps are negative uh, about uh, Jesus or his story or bad reputations or whatever, and so so many hearts are hardened. Again, what we have access to shapes the condition of our heart. And so based on your family of origin or whatever your story is or some way that somebody was hypocritical or judgmental, is your heart hard? What's the condition of your heart? Is there hardness? Is it hard for Jesus to penetrate your soul right now? Jesus continues, it says, verse 16, others like seed sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time when trouble or persecution comes. Because of the word, they quickly fall away. This represents the shallow heart. The heart that, has, that does not have the roots, does not have the depth. The hard heart is one perhaps that, is, that struggles with emotion. There's perhaps void of emotion. It's hard uh, to penetrate that heart. It's hard to be deeply moved by the story. In contrast to that is the shallow heart, uh, and what happens when a seed goes into a, a, a soil that's among rocks is very, very shallow soil, and so it'll grow up quickly, but it has no roots, and so it, won't, it can't stay there. And so this, these are uh, persons who are uh, perhaps uh, all emotion, and it's just kind of just kind of quickly jump in with emotion. Maybe uh, uh, they hear a moving story or they just are moved by the music that's being played underneath a moving story. And then they jump in with both feet and say, yes, that's it. That's the answer to all my questions. That's the combination to the lock. That is the key. That's the secret. That's the whole deal. And then Jesus says at the end of that section, but when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. 
as quickly as they get excited about that and jump in there with all emotion, there's no roots, and so the, the thing gets blown away. And then Jesus moves on to the third type of soil. Verse 18, still others like seed sown among thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. This is the distracted heart. So many times, we, what was that? What, did you, did some, did you see that back there? Yeah, what, um, what was I saying? The, the, I have a friend who refers to this as, as shiny object syndrome, that we get distracted. Just a squirrel, you know, that there's, we're just, we're just so distracted by all of the things that are going on around us. This is the blessed are the poor stuff. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, this incredible teaching found in the beginning of Matthew. He begins it with the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who are persecuted, blessed are those who are not distracted by all the stuff of life. My guess is that unlike the path, this would not have been a major issue for the disciples because they were poor. Last week we looked at Levi. He perhaps was the only one who had means. He was a tax collector. He was hated for that, but he, he very likely had some uh, means that he would have uh, had to walk away from and drop as he followed Jesus. But for the most part, they were poor. They, they didn't have much to let go of. They were blessed in this area. This was likely not a concern for them, but it's a big one for us. This third one, my guess is this is a big one for us here in this room. In the wealthiest country in the world, we have so many distractions. This is a big one for us. There's huge comparison issues keeping up with the Joneses, learning about new technology, about what our uh, uh, neighbor has, about what's going on here, what's going on there. There's huge entitlement issues. It, it's plaguing our kids. It is, uh, it is such an issue for college students. It's such an issue for uh, young people entering into the workforce and, and believing there's entitlement uh, for them because they are so knowledgeable and experienced because they've been doing the job for three or four weeks now. <laughs> it's tremendous entitlement issues, and it's us too. It's us. It's, it's old people like me or whoever. I mean, it's, it's us. There's entitlement issues uh, going in there all, all over the place here in terms of, of, of the distractions of life. He refers to him, he says, uh, verse 19, but the worries of this life, he talks about wealth, the worries of this life, how often are our anxieties connected to money? When you think about what you stay awake thinking about, when you think about what you fight about, when you think about what bothers you, what weighs on you, how many times is that connected to money? How many times in some ways is it connected to a money issue? How many marriages break up because of money issues? It, it, is, it is a huge, huge, huge factor. 
We think about, uh, we are so aware of in our culture what we don't have. We're so aware of what other people have. We're so aware of what uh, the, our neighbor has, about what the person who sits next to us in church has. These are all so distracting for us. You know, the only money in my life that I have no anxiety about is the money that I give away. That's the only money I don't have any anxiety about. The stuff I'm saving or the stuff I'm spending, that's the stuff that carries some level of anxiety with it. So Jesus says here in this third type of soil that is so relevant for us, beware of all the distractions, the thorns of life that just take away from what God wants us to be thinking about and heading toward. And then he finishes up with the good soil. Verse 20, others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. Bible talks a lot about growing and getting dirty. Seeds have to get dirty before they can grow. Bible talks a lot about plants, about fruits. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. I can't remember all at this time. Uh, Self-control, whatever. Jesus says that a tree is identified by its fruit. Bible talks a lot about fruit. And, and each of our fruit doesn't need to look the same. We don't have to get into that comparison game and say, yeah, well, my fruit doesn't look like this person's fruit. We're not supposed to compare ourselves with one another. It's like comparing apples to oranges, which, of course, are both fruit, and so that's okay. They're both fruit. But, but fruit determine what's happening in the soil. Fruit determine they're indicators of the presence of Christ in our soil. If there is no fruit, if there's little fruit in our lives, then our soil is falling on one of the first, our, the seed is falling on one of the first three soils. Period. I mean, it's that simple. If there's no fruit, then the condition of our heart is one of the first three soils. So what is the condition of your heart? For most of us, it's a blend. Maybe it's all four. Maybe it's sometimes this, sometimes that. Is your heart hard, calloused? Is your heart shallow and doesn't allow for deep roots? You don't want to stay somewhere long. You don't want to stay in a relationship long. The roots aren't allowed to grow deep. Is your heart distracted by the things of this world or is your heart fruitful? How's your heart Sometimes, not, all, not always, but sometimes I read through the anonymous cards that are uh, nailed to the cross here. Just read through, pray over them. Recently, um, someone just wrote the word whore, folded it, and nailed it to the cross. Whew. My prayer over that was that that person would know how much God loves her. Last week, there were two cards. One said, God Restore my heart. We didn't even talk about heart last week. Another card said, God, make my heart soft. That's what this is all about. It's about the condition of our hearts in response to Jesus saying, come, follow me. And again, it's not a one-time salvation deal. It is a daily experience for us to say, 
today, what's the condition of my heart based on what I've had, I have had access to, what I've been hurt by, all those things. What is the condition of my heart as I encounter you today, Jesus? We're going to have an opportunity to just reflect on that. What is the condition of your heart today, this week, this year? We're going to do a couple songs and give you the opportunity to do a number of different things in the room. You can come up to the cross and, and nail one of these red cards Please keep it anonymous. We look at them and pray over them uh, sometimes. And, um, but that's between you and God. It's a helpful thing for me to be aware of what's going on in our community, what's going on in our church, what's going on in your hearts. You can come to the front for unassisted prayer if you'd like. To the right, you can come and light a candle. To the far right, uh, there'll be anointing if you would like to uh, experience uh, the healing power of God. At either exit, there are, uh, there'll be assisted prayer. Folks on our prayer team would love to pray with you. In the center back is communion, where uh, you can take the bread representing the body of Christ and the cup representing his blood. We practice open communion. If you're visiting with us and you are a follower of Christ, feel free to participate in that. Or, of course, you can just stay where you are. Just reflect, uh, write, read, worship, respond. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we want to spend a few moments with you here. You know the condition of our hearts. Sometimes we don't. And so I pray, God, that there, there would be wisdom in, uh, here in this room, that you would reveal to us what's going on in our hearts. If there's hardness or shallowness or distractions or if we're fruitful. And Father, that you would give us wisdom in terms of how to move beyond that. May we be fertile soil, and I know, I know at times it, that the tilling of the soil, that's the painful part, where it gets torn up a little bit, and maybe there are tears, and maybe there's hurt, and maybe there's stuff from our past that gets stirred up, but that's also that our soil can be fertile to receive you. May your seed fall into soft soil today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.